Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members. And Devour Utah, a monthly magazine devoted to covering Utah's dining and drink scene, with a spotlight on cooking, local happenings, and libations. Available at newsstands or online at devourutah.com. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in September 2019. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today's very interesting topic, historical fiction uh, based on history. And uh, we have uh, the author, uh, first-time author of uh, some historical fiction, is getting uh, great reviews. Nadine LeChevenant, The Gates of Eden, is with us in studio the Gates of Eden is the book we're going to be talking about. It's a historical novel, and uh, this is uh, by first-time uh, book author, right, Nadine LeChaminant. Um, historical novel inspired by her great-great-grandmother. When Josephine Bell journeys from the slums of Victorian England to a remote Mormon settlement in Utah, the girl finds the promised land is not what she expected. Pressed into becoming the bride of an older polygamist, her struggle to find her own path takes her to unexpected places. Nadine LeCheminant has degrees in history and art from Utah State University, and uh, she is uh, now living in Salem, Oregon. As we mentioned, this is her first novel. Nadine LeCheminant, uh, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom, for having me. Uh, so it's getting uh, good reviews. It must be gratifying. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. is. Uh-huh. So uh, how did this how did this begin? I understand this is based on your great great grandmother. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, um, we have so many stories in my family. Um, I, th- I think a lot of Latter Day Saint families do. They write down all these um, stories, and one of them was about my great great grandmother. And I was so intrigued by her story. She grew up in kind of a Dixon- Dickens England, and went out to work as a child. And her and her family heard the message of the Latter Day Saint missionaries. And they were talking about this promised land far away in this remote wilderness kingdom. And she decides to take this epic journey. She becomes baptized. She um, takes a ship across the Atlantic and train out to Iowa. And then she's giving a two-wheeled handcart. And I'm guessing that most people in the audience know what that looks like. It's kind of the iconic Utah symbol. But these were little three-by-four-foot carts on two wheels that, that the saints pushed over the prairie, the Rocky Mountains, the desert, and over the Wasatch Front. Um, when my great-great-grandmother arrived, she said she's 15 years old, and she said she was waiting on the street for someone to ask her home. And in the shuffle for security and for a home, she ends up within just a few months as uh, as a second plural wife of a man in his 50s. So my story follows a little bit of her story arc. It's got some of the bare bones of her story, but really um, takes a different a different uh, storyline as well. Mm-hmm. What uh, did you, what did you want to explore in a in a novel? Taking some of the story of your actual great great grandmother, but but making mm-hmm. some differences. What what are some of the main themes you wanted to explore? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, in this three year period that my novel covers, it's eighteen fifty six to eighteen fifty eight, and I think it's one of the most tragic, explosive, 
colorful periods in the history of the settlement of the West. You have um, tens of thousands of Latter-day Saint converts who are hearing this message in England. They are desperately poor. Um, I don't think that many um, people in Utah realize the level of their poverty and desperation. They were hungry. And so they were drawn by these promises of a land of abundance. So um, it was the year of the first handcart trek. And on the first year, more than 200 people died of exposure and hunger and, and uh, illness. And they, um, it was far worse than the Donner Party, but a lot of people don't know about this phenom- you know, this, this event. They arrived in Utah to plagues of biblical proportion. There were um, grasshoppers, drought, and then the year that they arrived, uh, a severe famine. People were digging roots. Um, one account said they were begging in the streets of Salt Lake. Um, they, uh, Brigham Young, the prophet at the time, he instituted a Mormon Reformation, and he uh, really whipped up a lot of fervor. He wanted to have people reaffirm their faith, so thousands of people were rebaptized. Um, elders, church elders, went door to door with a list of questions and asked people, "Do you lust after your neighbor's wife? Do you um, have you taken an irrigation water out of turn?" Uh, do you grumble against the brethren? <laughs> and so, um, so, and during this time, uh, polygamy was being, uh, back east, it was known as the moral issue of the day. It was the hot-button issue just under slavery. Mm-hmm. So the government sent federal soldiers marching on Utah, fully armed, the might of the U.S. Army, and people in Utah became... Um, very, very nervous. They had been chased from state to state to state. They had had an extermination order put out for them in one state, and they finally thought they were safe. And so as these um, soldiers came, their sense about, their feelings about outsiders uh, revved up, and there was a lot of violent rhetoric and rising tension, and it culminated in the Mountain Meadows Massacre down in southern Utah, where more than 100 um, Latter-day Saint men uh, slaughtered a party of more than 100 people. So my novel is this young Josephine Bell, and she is just trying to come of age. And coming of age is already a pretty tricky terrain for most people. But for her, it was especially complicated because she's a, a young plural bride because all of this is happening in explosive way around her. So I th- I thought it would be an interesting backdrop for a novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, certainly so, certainly so. Uh, so I want to start out with, uh, you know, Victorian England. <coughs> and, and as you mentioned, <coughs> me. um, for descendants of, of these folks, uh, we tend to uh, focus on the on the conversion stories and then you know the the uh, and the overland trip and the hardships and and then the hardships uh the pioneering of uh of founding settlements and the founding families and and society here tend not to think about their life 
there, right? Mm-hmm. In yeah. Victorian England. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And by and large, these were these are among the poorer folks. Yeah, um, Brigham Young, Brigham Young, who was a missionary in England, wrote to Joseph Smith, and he said, primarily, it's the poor people who join. One estimate said it was uh, nine out of ten were quite poor. Uh, these were people who a lot of them worked in the mills. There was the newly, it was a, it was when England was just industrializing. So you had these horrible, horrible jobs, whether you were minor, whether you were working in the mills. Uh, and they, it was um, every day you worked, you might work 14 hours, children worked in the mills. If you um lost an arm or a hand to these big looms, you were out of a job. And many of them were, were quite hungry. It was kind of, um, if people have read Charles Dickens, it was that kind of England. Um, and um, I was reading on your website uh, a quote from Charles Dickens. Yes, yes. He went on board an immigrant ship. And um, at the time, there were rumors about polygamy. And so he went on board to expose this scandalous group of people. And he came away and he said, I couldn't write an an expose about them because they were some of the most orderly, strong, beautiful people that I have ever met. And he said they had incredible capacity for hard work. And he said, what will befall them on the shores of the Great Salt Lake. I cannot pretend to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but So he was a little worried about where they were going to mm-hmm. this place, you know, in the middle of the wilderness. But but he came away quite impressed. So uh, interesting for you to think about your great-great-grandmother, uh, 15 years old or you yeah, know, teenager, uh-huh. and, and she's part of this whole uh, movement. Um, I wonder if you've thought about comparisons to those folks in the 19th century uh, to refugees and migrants today. Yeah, I think, you know, we still see the same plight of refugees. We see people pulled and pushed around this globe because of desperate poverty, because of hunger. And they were no different than the people coming from Syria today or coming from South America Um they were lured and pulled by the same urges. Um, of course, they came for their faith, but they also came, I think many of them were attracted by this um, promise of abundance. After the economy improved in England, um, the membership rates fell dramatically. And so there was there was this call of faith, but there was also this other added um, attraction. Mm-hmm. And they would have been seen as, I'm sure they would have felt this, they would have been seen as different. They would have been seen as the other, right? Just as today's yes. migrants are sometimes seen as the other. You mentioned that the, the what were called the twin relics of barbarism, right? Slavery mm-hmm. and polygamy. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so this is this quote-unquote weird people who are practicing polygamy and seen as different. Oh, that's a great observation. Yes, exactly. And and they were they had a hard time crossing um, the the new, you know, the country of America, they were, you know, there was one, there were different accounts of some of the obstacles that they encountered because of the, you know, because of the rumors of polygamy. Um, One was kind of heartbreaking. There was a group that was 
taking the rail from New York or Boston out to Iowa City to begin their handcart trek. And they said they slept in a warehouse, and all night long people banged with sticks on the warehouse and threatened to kill them. And so they encountered a lot of violence. They encountered a lot of jeers. And um, you can read the newspaper accounts of um, there's one from, I think it's Davenport, and they said this weary group of of saints came through town, and some of them looked more fit for the grave than for the long trek. So because you had all ages, you had young children, you had elderly, you had women who were pregnant. So it was um, kind of a motley crew of, of impoverished people passing through these towns. Mm-hmm. By the way, um, I just uh, good a time as any to ask you this question. Your, what were your thoughts researching your great great grandmother? Oh yeah, you she had know, this extraordinary journey, and and uh, right, and and you have of course a connection to her. Right, you know, I I was so intrigued by her. I actually went down to Southern Utah to try to see, you know, if by any chance I could find her cabin or the place where mm-hmm. she lived, and mm-hmm. I. I did find the lot where I think there there's a uh, an old cabin and the bones of it are fading into the earth and I believe that may have been where she lived it's in outside of Summit but the the research that I undertook for that was really a lot of fun trying to discover her life I read not only her uh, several page memoir but I read uh, hundreds of pioneer journals, hundreds of newspaper accounts of the time, sermons, letters. I walked part of the Mormon trail. I pulled a handcart for a short enough distance to know that it would have been hellish. You know, mm. these little things were loaded with up to 500 pounds. I took the oldest steam engine train I could find and videotaped it so that I could get the feel of how it felt swerving around corners with this clackety-clack and this uh, piercing steam whistle. Um, I rode a horse. I went to living history museums and talked to to butter churners and quilters and blacksmiths. So... um, I, you know, when you write historical fiction, you end up using less than 1% mm. of your research. <laughs> but you really need to put yourself in this world. You need to know what bits of of history to pull out for every chapter. And so you really need to immerse yourself in this world. And that's what I tried to do. And it was, it was fun to know that these were my ancestors, mm. not only my great-great-grandmother, but all of my ancestors. Uh, that, that is an extraordinary experience. Not all of us are going to get to do that, right? What, what did, uh, did, did any of your views change? What, uh, what did that do to you or for you? Um, you know, I, I grew up, um, I grew up in Orem, Utah, in a Latter-day Saint family. And you know, pioneers were always these mythological <laughs> creatures. They were larger than life. And I wanted to write about people who sweat, people who argued with their spouse, people who gave birth on the trail, um, people who were real people. And it made me appreciate 
what they did more. It made me see them not as cardboard characters, but as real people. And that's actually the number one comment that I'm getting from um, people. A lot of people are reading it who are not Latter-day Saints, and some, and a lot of Latter-day Saints are reading it, and they uh, say the for the first time they understood what their ancestors went through, mm. especially if they came across with a handcart. Um, they felt like they were there. And so it it really helped me um, understand the sacrifices and understand their lived experience. Hmm. There is a sort of you know it comes in 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 waves, and there there's an ongoing debate over whether to sanitize history, and if so, how much or not to, and what what are the advantages or disadvantages? I'm sure you've thought about that. You wanted to, I guess, you wanted to present these people. Warts and all, right? Right, right. You know, there are a lot of um, uncomfortable events in Latter-day Saint history. And um, I wanted to write with honesty. I wanted to follow the story where it led. I wanted to follow the historical documents. and But I also wanted to write with compassion. I didn't want any villains in my story. I wanted everyone to have a backstory. And so even, you know, these people who um, participated in the Mountain Meadows Massacre, I didn't want to ever excuse this heinous act, but I wanted people to know that when people are raised in a cauldron of violence, they often respond with violence. And because these people had been pushed and pulled from place to place. Um, you know, they had, they had had their barns burned, their orchards burned, their homes burned down, women violated, men killed, children hurt as they had run from place to place. And I think that there was a real fear of outsiders and also a desire for revenge, you know, a real um, anger about what had happened to them. And so, I, I, and I think... Um, yeah, history is really complicated, but I, I really wanted to treat each character with sympathy rather than judgment. Mm-hmm. What would you say about the value of history? I think, you know, it tells us a lot about um, where we are now. Oh, can I go back just yeah, for the, I, I didn't fully answer. The question about sanitizing history. I think um, with the, in the age of the internet, that's become impossible. <laughs> and so I think it's better to be upfront and to, um, I, I think what the church is doing now is trying to get out ahead of the story to explain, you know, their, their take on it, um, understandably. So um, I think... And, and your question now was uh, about the value of history. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some some people, hopefully, it's not very many people, um, <laughs> say, "Well, you know, history is in the past. It's, that's past, right?" Right, right. So why do we have to go back to the, the look at the history? Right, right. Uh, I think history is valuable because it these same themes happen to us again and again and again. There's the same patterns, and so I think it helps us understand where we are now, who we are as humans. Um, And we have the same controversies and hot-button issues. Um, For example, in my book, 
a lot of the controversy in in America was over polygamy. And we still have these hot button issues around evolving sexual mores. Now it's um, gay marriage, transgender issues, abortion. You also still have these issues of us versus them and violent rhetoric that is sometimes associated with the extremist elements in religious communities. We also have um, the plight of immigrants. And I think looking at this group of immigrants and looking at them with sympathy for their plight may help us to feel more compassion for today's immigrants who are driven by the very same, the very same push and pull. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we, we see this. Um, uh, Utah, you know, uh, Mormon country, quote-unquote, uh, seems to be uh, more moderate on issues of immigration. Yes, yes. Uh, even though it's mm-hmm. deep-red Republican right, territory. Right, right. You're exactly right. And I think that's an interesting observation. Um, I, You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, so there's an effective history, I think, mm-hmm. remembered mm-hmm. history. Uh, let's take a break. We're, we're talking with Nadine LeCheminant. Uh, the Gates of Eden is a new historical novel, um, and it's, it's, it's based at least in part on her great-great-grandmother, who emigrated from Victorian England uh, after her conversion to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And uh, so this novel includes uh, many seminal events, uh, 1856-1858, that time period, which includes uh, handcart uh, immigration, the Mountain Meadows Massacre, uh, the, the Mormon Reformation. Uh, a lot of those issues are, are in this book, getting uh, great reviews. More with Nadine LeCheminot, The Gates of Eden, following this break. Support for Project Resilience Programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members and USU Center for Persons with Disabilities, working to create healthy, inclusive communities through innovative research, service, technical assistance, and education. Information at cpd.usu.edu. This is Kendra with Stokes Nature Center with some good news about how to build resiliency even during a crisis. We're all dealing with loss and grief right now, and our bodies feel loss in the same way, whether we lose a loved one or our sense of normalcy. And if we aren't practicing self-care, that loss can transition into isolation, depression, or more. There is healing in nature. It's proven that even just a half a mile of green space lowers rates of depression and anxiety, two of the greatest risks during a time of uncertainty and unknown. And here in Cache Valley, we have 2.1 million acres to play in, plenty of room to maintain physical distance and yet get your dose of nature. And Stokes is here to help you now and anytime with strategies and ideas to get into nature safely and enjoyably. You can join one of our Firefly Tours this summer, reach out for an idea of where to hike that might be less crowded, join our iNaturalist Challenge to seek out nature in your own backyard, or take a hike up the river trail and visit our nature center opening on the 23rd with shortened hours but the same educational opportunities you know and love. And we want everyone to feel comfortable getting outdoors where we can feel the calm, empathy, and healing that nature inspires. Contact us at logannature.org. This tip is brought to you by UPR's Project Resilience. To learn more about the project and explore more resiliency tips, visit upr.org. 
Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in September 2019. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Nadine LeCheminant. Her historical fiction uh, novel is called The Gates of Eden. It's based in part on her great-great-grandmother. So let's uh, turn back to our conversation, Uh, Nadine LeCheminant, The Gates of uh, Eden. Uh, So we talked about Victorian England, Right. Uh, let's talk briefly about the, the handcart uh, companies. Yeah. This was an innovation. Did this mm-hmm. start in 1856? Yeah, that was the first year. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, so normally it'd be the wagons. Right. And uh, you'd, you'd stuff all of your world belongings into that, and, yeah. and you'd have some shelter, I guess, right? Um, but these people are desperately poor, and some poorer than others. And so I guess mm-hmm. the idea was if you can supply your own power— uh, this little handcart, stuff everything you can in there, uh, we can outfit re- really poor people and they can come. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Uh, Brigham Young designed the carts and he designed them after the street sweeper, street sweeper carts. Um, and so each, uh, each cart could hold, each person could take 17 pounds of belongings, personal belongings, and that was it. And if you can imagine setting out across the world with just 17 pounds of your belongings. If you if you go home and try to get a scale out and decide what you would take. So they were really setting off with nothing. And, and yeah, they did not have a shelter. They, they did uh, haul tents. They had a couple supply wagons. Um, uh, yeah, it was it was a pretty pretty harrowing journey. Some they they the first parties uh, that first year there were two parties who left late and got stranded in Wyoming, and there were more than two hundred deaths. So yeah. it was a it was a a really uh, rough year, and there was criticism of the people who made that decision. Uh, we should say that there were subsequent handcart uh, companies who, and I think companies that preceded these these two ill-fated companies, mm-hmm. that you know made it okay, right? And right. in general, the the you know the the, the wagon uh, trains had a mortality rate that would be roughly comparable to, uh, you know, to the non-Mormon mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. immigrants. But yeah, there there was criticism. Um, you know, you started too late, and what are you mm-hmm. thinking, and you know mm-hmm. that sort of thing. I, I wonder, pondering this, where where do you come down on this? Well, d- definitely, there was some human error. Um, there were a couple people who uh, felt that faith would carry them through, and they felt that that they would arrive in good stead, but that that wasn't the case. Uh, it was it, it was such a harrowing journey for people that. Uh, they abandoned it in 1860 and uh, used other other means to get people mm-hmm. there. Yeah. So about four years of, mm-hmm. of these handcart uh, uh, companies. I, I want to get into uh, into polygamy, mm-hmm. and you treat this, of course, in, in the book. Um, so Josephine, mm-hmm. uh, in the novel, does this somewhat parallel your great-great-grandmother's? Was, was your great-great-grandmother a teenager and— yeah, my became a polygamous wife. Right, right. She was fifteen years old. She married a man who was fifty-four, and I, the during the Mormon Reformation, polygamy became no longer just an option. It was a commandment, and it was required for uh, to go to heaven. And so she um, uh, 
Yeah, she in 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 Josephine's in in my great great grandmother's case, the first wife was quite jealous, and my great great grandmother ended up not living in the same house, but living in a isolated farmhouse outside of Summit City, Utah. And she uh, she has some heartbreaking stories. She raised her 10 to 12 children, depending on which account you read. By She was based, she largely was left to her own resources. But there were other, and so you had women who suffered from loneliness, depression, uh, resentment, jealousy. You also had some other women who were married mostly to well-to-do men, who this was a, a an emancipation for them. Suddenly they weren't, uh, they didn't have to raise their children. You know, they didn't have to spend all their time focusing on raising children because they had sister wives who could do that. And some of them went back east and studied medicine. Some of them devoted themselves to writing. So for some women it was an emancipation. For others it was, it was a, a hellish sentence. Um, there were a lot of um, women. Some of the women in the lead, the leaders in 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 Utah. Some of the leading women uh, were real active in the early fight for suffrage for the vote, and they were quite instrumental in bringing that about. In fact, Utah was the um, the second territory after Wyoming to give the vote to Utah, to women. And at that time, no states in the union uh, allowed women to vote. Yeah. I want to read something from your website, by the way, nadinelechaminant.com. Uh, uh, um, so you you quote um, Zena Huntington-Young, plural wife of Brigham Young, who said, A successful polygamous wife must regard her husband with indifference, with no other feeling than that of reverence. For love we regard as a false sentiment, a feeling which should have no existence in polygamy. Right. Um, how prevalent was that, do you, do you think? Uh, well, I think that, you know, it goes against human nature. <laughs> um, uh, people fall in love. They want, to, they want to idealize each other. They want to love each other. They want to have affection. And when you share someone, I think sometimes the only way to mentally, emotionally deal with that is to just put yourself at one remove and say, this is my priesthood leader. This is, um, you know, a different kind of husband. But I think it was uh, much harder to realize for many women than it was to to, to state it as an ideal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder, and you must have thought through this, you're, you're writing Josephine in the book, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Heber, uh-huh. right, yes. who's the 50-year-old right. husband. Right, Heber Dodd. Um, and, you know, there are things from his perspective, I'm sure, and from the mm-hmm. men who are living polygamy as well. Um, what, what stands out to you in the in actual lived lives of people living polygamy? Uh-huh, yeah. Uh, and, you know, there are a lot of journals out there, and... Yeah, you know, I think sometimes people talk about polygamy also at one remove as a sacred covenant. But I think um, what I wanted to do was go into the bedroom to find out the real dynamics between people because uh, 
when you're in a marriage, it's it's often hard to to do, you know, to leave all that at the door. Um, and and Heber Dodd, he was in my book. He was excited. He was he wanted to obey the commandment. He was um, he hadn't really noticed this young girl who was who was a- around in their household. She was a school teacher, so she was living with them for a while. And suddenly, when this this uh, new commandment comes, he starts seeing her differently, he, knowing that she could be a possibility for him. And so it changed men, it changed women, it changed how they viewed each other. Um, and and it was it it was difficult for a lot of men too, but it was also oh I think it was all kinds of people had all kinds of emotions. We're humans and we're complicated, and mm-hmm. there's always uh, uh, more nuance to everything that we do. It's nothing is black and white. Um, what obviously there are parallels between polygamy lived then. Mm-hmm. Uh, practiced by the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, since been in 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 that church renounced. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're offshoot groups mm-hmm. like the FLDS, and and polygamy is still lived. Right. Um, uh, wonder what the do you think there are differences in in how it's lived today versus it's lived then? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's one I've thought about. Uh, there are actually a lot of um, polygamists, fundamentalist polygamists, somewhere between twenty and 60,000 in the U.S., and people can't get a handle on how many because so many live in secret. Um, and, you know, in Salt Lake, there people live this lifestyle secretly. In southern Utah, of course, um, they live it openly. Um I think the emphasis is different now. Um, Polygamy is illegal, and I think after a disastrous raid in the 1950s where the media saw, people saw media images of weeping children and weeping women separated from husbands and fathers, um, the authorities, legal authorities have not opted to try to prosecute polygamy. And so they don't live in fear of that, but they there is kind of an emphasis now on um, going after people who marry underage girls, and um, yeah, I, I, I you know I don't know how how different it is. Mm-hmm. I think in in both cases it was held up as an ideal. It was held up as a, a commandment from God. And uh, but we live in a different world now. We're far less isolated, and I think that people in some of the communities in southern Utah are quite isolated, but but far less so than before. And I think when you are living a style that is so at odds with the rest of society, and and the rest of society is more um, something that you can see, it must be strange for young kids to grow up in this environment. Uh, do you think that's the right balance for law enforcement to you know, to sort of just uh, you know be okay with uh, polygamous marriage, but to go after sexual abuse, uh, you know, underage, right? Uh, yeah, girls, right? They, they go after that. They also go after welfare fraud mm-hmm. and uh, financial improprieties by leaders. Um, yeah, 
I think they I think authorities just don't want another debacle like what happened in the in the 1950s where public sentiment turned against uh, the authorities for breaking up these families and so I think that um, yeah I, I don't know <laughs> yeah it's a tough I don't know. one I mean because we have so many different ways that that we marry that we have relationships um, and the rules about marriage are, are evolving they've changed and people are a lot more liberal in their views I do think that the problem with polygamy is children who are raised sometimes without opportunity to go to school and young kids who are pushed into this, especially the young girls mm-hmm. and, and also the young boys who are um, competition for men. And so they are taken and dropped off in St. George to yeah. get them out of the way. Right. The, the FLDS lost boys. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, before we go to another break, uh, going back to the 19th century, um, we talked about earlier how you know we forget that these are Victorian English people. Mm-hmm. They would have had the in their minds and hearts. They would have had those Victorian sexual mores, right? The Victorian, and and then they joined this church, mm-hmm. and and which which preaches polygamy, which is 180 degrees away from. Right, how they were raised. I, I right. wonder if you've thought about how, th- you know, how how a person through their faith ha- that that's right. a long distance to travel. Right, right. Emotionally, and you know. Yeah. Well, you know, there were there were uh, those who came from a little bit more middle class, uh, maybe upper middle class backgrounds, and so they would have been more raised with this Victorian morality. I think the lower classes maybe weren't as um, indoctrinated because they were they just had a different kind of life. Um, I think that uh, yeah, the people who came across were so traumatized by all of this experience by coming and finding that. They arrived to hunger by going through this whole handcart trek, by living in the middle of the wilderness, by suddenly having their life turned upside down in so many ways. And I think they were so traumatized. Maybe they, um, you know, it's just one more thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But, yeah, I I think it would have been really difficult to to do that. It's It's like young men who are sent to war and all of a sudden it's all right to kill. And how do you do that? There's a lot of emotional complications and perhaps guilt. Um, yeah, I, I think it would have been very difficult. Mm, interesting, yeah. Um, well, let's take another break. When we come back, I want to uh, talk, among other things, I'd like to talk about uh, There's uh, you have some interesting links on your or, or some posts on your website. Uh, this is something I haven't thought a whole lot about. Uh, you talk about the, the I'll just the, this post uh, title is the 85 hour work week of female homesteader, uh, <laughs> the, uh, which you know it, hard work for the men, mm-hmm. even harder work for the women, right? Well, they were maybe I don't know. Yeah, I, I you know I don't know how they compare, but the women were often the first up. They had to get the fire going, set the kettle on. Often they were the last to bed. And they worked continuously from dawn to bedtime. 
except for on the Sabbath. They baked the bread, they baked pies, they churned their butter, they canned beans and butchered hogs and swept the floors, gave birth, tended children, they tended the farm animals, the, you know, milked the cows. They had to make all their clothing by hand, so they knit mittens, they um, sewed trousers and darned socks. And then they also helped out sometimes with the gardens. So they were planting corn and weeding potatoes and making their own candles. Everything that we, um, in our modern society, we flip on a light and we have the light. We don't have to make a candle. We don't have to gather wood. We don't have to make a fire. If we want uh, some dinner, we don't have to take our flour, you know, take our wheat to the mill to grind it and bake bread. And and uh, it's it, their work was so, so difficult. It was... Um, yeah, it was a and and endless sounds mm-hmm. like and endless. Right? You know? uh-huh. I just want to read this from your website. This is from uh, Memory Event Jane of Kentucky, nineteenth century. I've been a hard worker all my life, but most all my work has been the kind that perishes with the using, as the Bible says. That's the discouraging thing about woman's work. If a woman was to see all the dishes she had to wash before she died piled up before her in one pile, she'd lie down and die right then and there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which it, it, it's it's very interesting to think about. I wonder, um, much less leisure time than we have. Right, right, yeah. Uh, and so I don't know what that. I don't know if that tends to promote more happiness or or less. I I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I've thought about how happy or unhappy people were back then. I think definitely they had more sense of community, and I think that's one of the things that that carried them through. Um, they had their their faith. Um, in in my case, and this was true of some pioneers, and it's not something that is talked about a lot. They they lived in a land that was so hard scrabble. That was it was so difficult to make a living. You know, you had to dig the irrigation ditches down from the hills. And yet, many of them came to love the landscape. You know, they they talk about the landscape sometimes with lyrical terms. And so they also had that. In in my book, my uh, character, Josephine Bell, sees the land as an enemy when she first arrives. And then she becomes... um, she falls in love with the big sky and with these lofty mountains. And so they they also had this beautiful, beautiful setting that was harsh, that was so harsh that it was unwanted and unsettled before they came by any white settlers. But they but it was also a land that was very beautiful. So I think that that in some of the poems and songs that you that you uh, that you can read, you see that theme too of that beauty that lifted them up. Mm. Uh, that is interesting. Thing, but I don't think about that much. Uh, some of these uh, folks would have, many of them would have been city folks living in poor areas right. of London or wherever, and all of a sudden, you're in a desert. Right, right. I, that's a great observation. They came from hovels. They came from slums. They came from rat-infested alleys. And they came from, you know, these poor walks of life. And um, all of a sudden, yeah, they're in the wilderness. And Brigham Young was a pragmatist. I mean, he was such a practical thinker. And when they arrived, he said, don't worry so much about your religious duties. First, your first duty is to learn to grow a cabbage and mm-hmm. dig a ditch. And mm-hmm. so 
it was a very pragmatic movement and um, yeah yeah it was a very very different life the other thing in my book I love to think about how you know they lived in this uh, my character came from Liverpool which was just the sky was a soot infested black sky and then they came out to this wide open sky where they suddenly could breathe and so there were there were good things and there were bad things mm-hmm. about their mm-hmm. new home yeah i just have about a minute uh, left um i, I wondered uh, in your research is is there is there a moment in your research or a fact or an emotion that stands out to you yeah um i think that the most um, oh, poignant experience was uh, I, I was I was walking the I was driving the Mormon Trail and I walked part of it, but an old rancher out on a remote lonely road. Uh, I ran into him. He took me to a place where he says, you can find the real trail up there. He took me to a place where I could slip through the barbed wire fence and walk up to the top of this hill. Now, the saints had come 1,200 miles pushing these little handcarts. They had crossed the Rockies. They crossed the desert. They thought they were almost there. And they were just within a stone's throw of the valley, they thought. So they come up over this ridge, the same ridge that I walked up, following their ruts. And in front of them, as you come over the crest of the hill, is the sharp, jagged peaks of the Wasatch Range. And you look across this long, long line of mountains, and you see no pass. They're covered with snow, and they look so intimidating. A lot of people broke down and wept. They just, it's called, uh, it was dubbed Heartbreak Ridge Mm. because so many people just felt broken by that view. And so that was, I think, one of the... the, um, the most poignant parts of my research. Yeah. You got to experience that, mm-hmm. thinking yeah. about your, your ancestors. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, much more, uh, we could say, and uh, much in the book, The Gates of Eden. It's a new historical novel from Nadine Le Cheminant. Uh, the website, NadineLeCheminant.com. Nadine Le Cheminant, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. A limited number of tickets are available now for Writers in the Woods, book signings and presentations by artists in the beautiful surrounding of northern Utah's natural settings. In July, writer Nicole Walker will share her collections, the after-normal brief alphabetical essays on a changing planet, and sustainability, a love story, at the Stewart Farm in Hyde Park. Join Utah Public Radio and the Stokes Nature Center in July for Writer in the Woods. Ticket information at upr.org. UPR is your public radio station, and we share your concerns about finding ways to safely support restaurants and retailers in our communities. That is why we are offering free on-air and online announcements to help you better inform your customers about COVID-19 shopping, dining, and entertainment services. Simply go to upr.org and submit your hours for dine-in operations, pandemic policy shopping guidelines, virtual road trip links, and special curbside or drop-off food or grocery delivery details. 
UPR is committed to reconnecting us all, however your business or organization is making that happen. Let us help you by going to upr.org.